Um, hi, my name is Lisa and I'm an alcoholic. Hey everybody. Um, Merry Christmas. Uh, those promises hit different on a sober Christmas day um, for me. Um, spent a lot of Christmases causing myself and others a lot of heartache and to have a peaceful and joyful day is a really big deal. Um, I was gonna write bullet points and shit, um, but I, I think I know my story pretty well and I just, the only reason that I would want to write bullet points is so that I'm concise and I share solution, but, um, you know, a little prayer for God to speak through me will suffice, I think. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about, um, you know, just give you guys some backstory. I'm going to talk about a really pivotal point that brought me into the rooms. And then I'm, I'm going to tell you about my experience with the steps one through 12 as, as I've experienced them. A little redundant, but, um, I'm also a little bit nervous. <laughs> Sorry if I trip over my words. Um, I was born in San Angelo, Texas. Um, my parents had, oh man, my, uh, a lot of, a lot of weird, sketchy shit going on with my parents. And then I was born and then they got married to try and like make it work or whatever. Um, but, uh, my uncle who also lived in town, my father's brother kept breaking into the house and stealing shit cause he's a drug addict. And so they decided that like, maybe you better get out of town with me. Um, so we moved to Mississippi, um, when I was still an infant and lived, um, in the same tiny, tiny town as my paternal grandparents, my Nana and my Papa. And they really gave me, they, they really tried to give me like an idyllic childhood because my my mom was working three jobs my father couldn't keep a job um I would later learn that he had severe depression and major drug issues but um he was there but he was never really present um and my mom was gone all the time um because she was working she had to um so I spent a lot of time with my grandparents on their farm um I remember a lot of sunshine I remember a lot of swimming and a lot of popsicles, just really good stuff. Um, but uh, when I was about th three or four years old, my grandparents decided that the best thing for me um, would be to take me away from my mom and um, try and have my dad get custody of me. So I didn't see my mother for like, six or eight months and um I was told that like it they were doing what was best for me that you know she didn't love me because she was always working and she cared more about work and just like all of this really awful confusing shit in the vein of like helping me and that uh, and I bring that up because we as humans like think that we have good intentions right but Intentions really don't matter if you're causing somebody harm, if we are causing somebody harm. So they had the greatest intentions for me, but it did some like lifelong damage that still is coming up for me. So that was, there was a lot of turmoil there. And after I was reunited with my mom, didn't take long before she served him those papers. And, you know, I remember 
sitting on the bed with my parents and my mom was like very stone-faced and my father was just like a mess and in tears and man it was really confusing and and really hard to watch um and then the next night my mom like scooped me up in the middle of the night and we were off to Midland where her family lived and um I just remember like this weird dichotomy in my childhood of like these idyllic scenes of like popsicles and sunflowers and then like all of this other like weird traumatic shit um so we moved to Midland where my mom's family was and I went from doing whatever I wanted whenever I wanted to having to and like you know playing in the dirt and being a tomboy and stuff to this uh really strict um Episcopal family that I had never really met before but they like wanted to put me in dresses all the time and they wanted to take me to church and they wanted me to to, you know read what they called the big book which is not our big book but um just I just remember feeling very constricted I felt like the walls were closing in on me because there were all of these like new rules and new clothes and a new school and all of this stuff that I had never really experienced before and so that was a really difficult transition there was a lot of love in that family but also a lot of of really like strict rules um I went to school in Midland um I was I'm gonna also talk a lot about not maybe not a lot but I'm also gonna talk about my outside issues too as they relate to my alcoholism um I think that a lot of us have dual diagnoses and I think it's really important to talk about mental health I remember the first time that I heard somebody in a meeting talk about their mental health I was like oh shit we can deal with that here too like okay um so I was diagnosed with severe ADD in first grade and in the early 90s it wasn't a thing um but I I remember like being in a PTA meeting or whatever with my mom and my teacher and my teacher was like you know Lisa's really struggling and she can't focus and she can't do her homework and stuff and my mom took that as my teacher saying that I wasn't very smart which didn't make sense because I was in all these like very advanced classes so that like again led to this weird dichotomy of being in all of these very advanced classes but really struggling to keep up and it led to feelings of not being good enough it led to feeling like an outsider being around all these smart kids and seeing these people succeed around me but always always struggling and I really I didn't get the help that I needed um I think that you know my mom really did the best that she could with what she had she didn't know um but that made school really really hard like really hard um i remember there was this special school for kids called gifted educated midland where we'd go to um from our regular school to another school three days out of the week and do all of these like we did like oceanography and archaeology and we did a real dig and everything and like that is fun but if you're crying at night because you don't know how to do your homework it's not fun anymore um, and shit, that's what school was like for me. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of friends growing up. I had one best friend who moved away and then I went to a different school in fourth grade and kind of made some friends, but 
again, this like really weird like outsider feeling. These girls that were like into sports and really good with homework and you know doing all of these like church things and being really involved. And I kind of was just always on the outskirts, wondering why they were friends with me. Um, and then I so I struggled a lot through like up until about eighth grade. And then my family decided that they um, wanted me to go to a private school that um, they had connections with. I, I think that one of my aunts had like taught there or something. Um, this really bougie private Christian school, Episcopal, which is like lukewarm Catholic, like diet Catholic. Um, so I went there and it was just another one of those scenarios where I was with all of these like really, really gifted kids and I was fucking, I was struggling, man. And um, I, but I, I got really involved in theater there and that changed my whole world. Um, I got to build sets and use my hands and, and create things. One thing that I didn't mention is that um, I, started singing when I was in like kindergarten first grade and choir was a really really big thing that was like singing was a really big deal to me I always did it in church um I had groups and stuff I come from a music loving family and so when theater hit it was like oh man I get to build stuff I get to create I get to sing I get to perform and it was kind of the first scenario where I was doing something that made people feel good and that was really powerful for me so I got involved in theater and when I was 15 we had a cast party at my friend Morgan Rudder's house um and everyone was kind of hanging out and drinking out of red cups and stuff and um I I remember having a sip of my mom's wine cooler when I was a really little kid and thinking that it tasted like Kool-Aid, but she yanked it out of my hand, and I was like, well, can't have that. Um, but other than that, I hadn't really fucked with alcohol or anything, or drugs. Um, but at that cast party, I had my first drink. And a lot, like a lot of other people, it was this, you know, this deep breath of, of air. You know, I for so long, I had I had been struggling to keep up with people I had been struggling to fit in um I had I had been struggling with um my outside issues you know my ADD my mood disorder my bipolar disorder kicked in around 11 so I'd been dealing with that my mom got remarried when I was young and like that was a lot you know I'd, I I felt like I was continuously like climbing uphill and kind of sliding all the time but man, when that alcohol kicked in, like, whew, there was something different about that. And I made it my mission to seek that out above everything else. And that school, a lot of weekends, most weekends, people's parents would go out of town and leave them with, like, way too much money for pizza. And, of course, we'd blow it on alcohol. And I remember partying every single weekend and I had this car I had this um fucking what do you call it a forerunner with like these inset panels in the back that held two handles of alcohol perfectly and so I became the holder of the alcohol I was the one responsible enough to hold everyone's booze 
Um, which was a fucking mistake on their part because I was swigging from that all of the time. But the reason that I mentioned that is because that's what got me to the point of drinking daily by 17. I mean, I, I was, I, I remember drinking before my AP English class in the morning, doing what we called liquid lunches, drinking after school, like, I don't know how we got all of that alcohol. It almost scares me for kids these days, you know what I mean? Like, how the fuck? Um... But it got serious, and I, you know, fell in love a couple of times in high school, but not like I fell in love with alcohol. That was my first, like, and probably longest-term relationship. Um, It was the most consistent relationship I ever had anyway. (laughs) Um, But high school sucked. I almost didn't graduate. I almost didn't show up day of graduation because I was in bed with my girlfriend hungover, you know, at somebody else's house. Like, um, oh, that's another important thing to mention. I'm queer. And growing up in a conservative town, um, being a queer kid is really fucking hard, especially being at a a private school, you know, a private Christian school, like being under the radar. um, It was hard, but I... I came out to my parents when I was 15 and my mom cried and told me it was a phase and I was like, all right, whatever. But um, I kind of decided early on that like nobody was going to accept me anyway, so I might as well do whatever the fuck I wanted. So I did. And then I found alcohol and then I started drinking every day at 17 with that mindset of I'm going to do exactly what I want to because you guys aren't going to like me anyway. You know what I mean? So that just, like, talk about stoking the fire with self-pity, man. That's what I did. And, like, teenage angst with with all of that. Like, oh, you know. Um, So I tried to go to college. I spent most of my time in the art studio. Um, Again, didn't go to classes, couldn't keep up with my work, was not a good student. So I dropped out of college and um, convinced my parents to move me to Austin. And um, I was 19. It was 2010 that I moved here. 2000, yeah, no, 2011. And it was my first time on my own. And I went nuts. I went absolutely nuts. I found the co-op scene here. Um, and I don't know if y'all know anything about the co-op scenes in Austin, but those kids are fucking wild, like tripping acid, spinning fire type, dangerous, wild. Um, but that's the crowd that I got into because it was the first time that I felt like, man, these guys are as wild as I feel and that feels good. So I stuck with that and they drank like I did and they partied like I did. Um, so again it was that commitment to my relationship with alcohol that I sought out like that was I can't remember anything but chasing that feeling in those days I I really can't um but there was a a party that we had um in 2012 that got too big and I looked over and I saw somebody's kid pouring themselves a drink and I was like I I can't like this is not okay and so I got one of my friends and we holed up in one of the rooms and we called the police on our own party and that was the last time that I ever partied with them because that scared me the fact that I had helped put on a party where a child was almost drinking that's awful that 
that weighed on my conscience for a long time. So I backed off from the partying, but I didn't back off from drinking. I just drank alone. <laughs> and um, that was when my drinking got heinous because in 2011, I turned 21 and I could get it whenever I wanted. Um, but I ended up basically going to work every day. Um, couldn't keep a job, had a new job like every six months. So when I say go to work, I mean that loosely. <laughs> um, but I would go to work um, early in the morning. I would come home. I would lock myself in my room and I would drink absinthe. And that was what I did. And my roommates ended up like a year into our lease. My roommates tried to have a, I guess, an intervention with me. And um, I got really pissed off um, because it was like I I had had instances before that um, where people told me that I had had a problem, but it was with family or cops or the couple of times that I went to an institution that I didn't mention or, you know, like like places where you would expect for people to tell you that you have a problem. But my friends telling me that I have a problem? Like, fuck you guys. You know, I thought that you were my friends. I thought that you cared about me. And you're going to try to take away the one thing that makes me okay? Like, that's wrong. <laughs> so I left. And um, <laughs> the last time that I saw those people, dude, <laughs> I saw them downtown a couple of years ago. And I tried to say, hey, and one of them literally goes, why are you talking to us? <laughs> like, that's the kind of friendships that I cultivated. <laughs> um, but so after that, I, again, I really don't remember much other than chasing the feeling. Um, a lot of lonely nights. I would party. I would go to bars. I would... Um, go to a lot of parties, but I would always disappear. And I would always, 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 every single night, every single party, I would end up alone. Um, and in 20, end of 2012, my drinking had gotten to the point where I was really starting to scare myself in regards to driving. And so... I gave my car back to my dad and I told him that the brakes were faulty. Um, I just pulled something out of my ass to get him to take the car off my hands. Um, and I got, I got a DWI at South by a few months later in my girlfriend's car. Uh, and like that just goes to show that if where there's a will, there's a way. You know what I mean? Like I can give away my car but I'm still going to drink and drive. Um, and that was a really, really pivotal moment for me because I, I went to, um, you know, like state of Texas makes you jump through all these hoops and get these assessments and stuff. And I had the choice to either take a class about drugs and alcohol. And I knew that it was just a bunch of videos of, you know, mothers against drug driving and all of that stuff or I could um go to outpatient treatment and when faced with those options I felt like I had nothing to lose as far as being honest with somebody about my drinking and my drugging 
And so I sat across from this drug and alcohol counselor that I had never talked to before, and I got honest with her. I told her that I drank around the clock. I told her that I had been doing it for years, um, that I had it stashed all over the place. I mean, I, I told her what I tell you guys. And I told her my family history and about, you know, I, I touched on some traumas and she just reached her hand across the desk and kind of patted it. And she said, of course you're an alcoholic and that's okay. And that was like, that was a breath of air that I hadn't felt since I was 15 because I had been living with this belief that I was just a total trash person. Like that was just my lot in life. I was just a rotten apple because uh, that's what I had been told. I had been told by family, by friends, by cops, by lawyers, by professionals that that I had problems and I needed to fix them. I was broken and I needed to fix my problems. At least that's what I heard. But when somebody was kind to me after the amount of honesty that I had just barfed all over her and told me that there was hope for me, that was powerful. And she told me about AA. And I have a grandfather who was a really violent alcoholic when my mom was a kid and has been sober or dry or whatever for a long time. And I knew that he fucked around with AA like before I was born. But other than that, I didn't really know anything about it. And so I went, and um, this was actually my first AA meeting here at the Pink House. Um, I <laughs> downed an entire bottle of champagne to celebrate my first meeting, <laughs> and um, uh, rode the bus here because um, I was still not driving. At that point, my license had been revoked, so I was not allowed, legally not allowed to drive, as if drinking didn't, you know, <laughs> legally allow me to drive, but whatever. Um, so, you know, I think it's really important to touch on the fact that it's not the fact that I drink, it's why I do it. It's how I feel and how I function. And the reason that I downed that bottle of champagne before going to an AA meeting is because I was fucking terrified. I was terrified of you guys. I thought that, man, I didn't know what I thought was going to happen, but I was not ready to find out. And so I got drunk over it. And um, I found a sponsor who I kept hearing here, find somebody who has what you want. And I found this guy who told me that he could go out to bars and he could go out to parties and he could have a great time and not drink. And I was like, I want that. I want to do exactly what I'm doing uh, and not change anything and maybe not drink. Um, that's what I want. And so I chose him as my sponsor and he told me things like, uh, get on your knees every day and pray and, um, read this part of the big book and read, you know, read this literature or listen to this speaker. And I found things like getting on my knees to be very objectionable because I felt like I was already so broken and so beaten down that like how dare you tell me to get on my knees I've been on my knees for years I don't want to do this I don't I don't want to be vulnerable 
especially to something that I don't understand. I don't know what the other side of that looks like. And so there was this unwillingness to change internally. Like externally, I was working your steps and I was going to your meetings and I was using your words. But internally, I was still really terrified. Um, and uh, I just... I don't know what happened, man, but but all that I remember is walking to the corner store and getting a Corona, and the, the next handful of years was just oblivion. I went out harder and faster than I ever had. Um, I literally drank around the clock from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep. I would wake up in the middle of the night to drink. Um, I started getting the shakes, you know, in my early 20s, like, man, it was bad. And, um, but in that time, I found somebody who I made my higher power. We were um, in a relationship and she was, I had dated a lot of people um, and chosen people who were just as sick as me or sicker than me so that I didn't have to focus on my own shit. Like, I didn't know that that's what I was doing, but that's exactly what I was doing. And she was the first person that I was ever with who, like, she had bipolar disorder too, and she didn't drink because of it. She took her meds like she was supposed to. She went to the doctor. She had friends that cared about her like she was normal for all intents and purposes and that was astounding to me and I was like you can fix me <laughs> so I spent the next three and a half years trying to figure out how she was gonna fix me and it I mean she was my everything I I was convinced that we were going to get married. I, I was convinced that we were going to spend the rest of our lives together. And, um, but man, she couldn't fix me. I couldn't fix me. Nobody could fix me. And by February of 2016, I had the relationship. I had the job that I wanted. I was a, a successful pastry chef. Um, I loved where I lived. I had a car again. I had friends that I cared about, but I could not stop drinking. I couldn't. I had everything that I had ever wanted and I couldn't stop. And it was like being stuck in a fucking like fun house with all the mirrors, like everything just looks a little off. And I couldn't live that way anymore. I was so done because, and you know what it was like, I talked about this the other day, but um, the moment that I realized that I couldn't do it anymore was at a birthday party in December in 2015. And I remember being outside, you were there. I remember being outside and um, I was on the patio and I fell, I was so drunk that I fell and I broke this really beautiful glass punch bowl. And I was just sitting like an idiot in this broken glass. And my friend Kate reached down to help me get up but there was a look in her eyes that I had never seen before and it told me everything that I needed to know and so I sat on that for a couple of months until I was finally ready to go to a meeting and um I 
decided on the 22nd of February or the 21st of February that I was going to go to a meeting and did the same thing that I did with the pink house. I got drunk instead and I woke up the next day and I was so, I had felt, I I felt this sense of defeat that I had never felt before. And like the book says, my options were either to head off into, you know, oblivion, uh, continue my life in the futility, you know, that it was, or seek spiritual help. And so I decided that I was going to go ahead and seek the spiritual help that had worked for other people before. Like, it didn't work for me at first, um, but I saw it work for you guys. So I knew that there was something to it. And I walked my happy ass to NA24, RIP, um, and because uh, it was in my neighborhood. And if y'all have been to NA24, y'all know that place is rough. Like, it is so rough. There are people with, like, 30 years of sobriety, and there are people nodding off in the corner that just walked in. You know what I mean? Like, it is the whole swath of AA. But what really got me at that meeting while I was, like, you know, shaking with the DTs and everything was that there were people there who told stories that were like mine and had bottoms that were like something you'd hear out of the movies, but they were a number of years sober and they were happy. They had a twinkle in their eye. They had hope. And that really, like that really got me. And so I kept going back. I walked to that meeting every day and a couple of days in, I don't know where I got the idea, but I decided that the desire chip in my pocket wasn't enough. I needed to feel it all the time. So I put that bitch in my shoe and I walked on it all the time to remind me that every step I took needed to be toward recovery. Um, I, uh, I ended up breaking my foot at Barton Springs, like in March of that year and having to go back home, um, to Midland uh, because my parents like wanted a second opinion and whatever. Cause the doctor that I had told me I needed surgery and my family was like, Oh, we know better than that. As if the professionals don't know what they're talking about. So I had to go home. But the reason I mentioned that is I was going to be in a house full of alcohol by myself. And I was really nervous about that. But y'all, it was fine. I was totally fine. I was safe and protected in the hands of a higher power, which for me, when I started was just AA. Um, but with that, my like <laughs> gimpy broken foot, I still walked to that meeting every day. Like, that's how desperate I was for this. I'm not recommending that you walk on a broken foot, but I'm telling you that like, that's how bad I needed you guys. And there was one meeting where I, um, one of my friends was walking me home and it was real late at night. And uh, I was telling him that I was having a really hard time with the higher power thing because the first time that I tried to get sober, I tried to force a spiritual experience. I did a lot of prayers and meditation and temples and churches and candles and tarot cards and like fucking you name it. I probably like had that and a crystal for it. You know what I mean? Like I tried, but the 12th step says as a direct result, of working these steps. Uh, having had a, spirit, a spiritual experience is a direct result of working these steps. So that's why it didn't work. I forced it. And I was really nervous about that. And like the group was working for my higher power, 
but it was getting to the point of like being on the precipice of something more but I was scared of that so I talked about it because you guys taught me that I can be fully honest with anyone in this room and I told him my fears and I told him my hesitations and this dude just launched into this diatribe about like um particle theory and the theory of manifestation and quantum physics and all of this like really out there shit um but the reason that it stuck was he was on fire he was telling me about how it propelled him through the world in a way that it nothing else had he told me about how you know the thing I think that stuck out to me most was that he said these scientists that know all about particle theory and the you know manifestation and all this the people that study this the smartest people in the world still have respect for the mysteries of the universe and that's magical and so that was like I've told you guys what my first step experience was that was my second step was coming to believe that there was a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity. I knew that AA was was working on it, but but that was like that was the magic right there. And so I went home and I prayed to my higher power for the first time. Before that, I was praying to AA. And but I remember that night and I remember that prayer. And um I decided that from here on out, I was going to trash those old ideas of God and everything that I had been told, and I was going to work from the ground up. And, um, you know, thing is, uh, the higher power that I had, the girlfriend, um, cheated on me and broke up with me because I was still a really sick alcoholic. Like, take away my alcohol and I'm still really sick. Um, without, you know, proper solution. So, like, I was trying. I was really working on it. But when your higher power cheats on you and dumps, on, it dumps you, like, ah, it was really bad. Um, but I had learned at that point that I was truly an alcoholic. And I was so desperate not to drink. Like, I was going to do anything in my power not to drink. So I did some other alcohol instead um, for about three weeks. And I was going to meetings every day and I was talking to my sponsor and I do not recommend using and working a full program because that hurts. Like, it sucks. Um, but, I mean, man, you saw me. Like, I was a fucking wreck. Um, it was bad. But I needed that relapse to learn that I'm also a drug addict. And uh, the reason that I say that, I say that for singleness of purpose. Like, again, it doesn't matter what I use or when I use or how I like the fact of the matter is like it's how I feel and how I function and so I feel like that instance was my third step because I was taught that the third step is just a decision to do the rest of the work and after relapsing like I had and losing losing my higher power or whatever like I just knew that I couldn't go back. And so I started from the ground up. I, I worked my, my first and second step again and really thought about it, really thought if I had any hesitation or, or any doubts left in my mind, and I didn't. I, I was done, man. I was fucking done. And um, 
the first fourth step that I worked was long and my first fifth step that I worked with my sponsor was heinous. It took six and a half hours and um, uh, she put not one but two costumes on her dog because I was so sad. She kept telling me like, this is sad. Like you, you got a really sad story. I was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, this, so she added levity and, um, the magic I think of the fifth step for me was one, like the fact that I had been fully, fully honest and told all of my deepest and darkest secrets to somebody and she still loved me. She looked at me with the same look of love and compassion as when we started. The way that she looked at me didn't change. And the other thing was that she wrote out this long list of character defects for me, but she helped me to turn them into assets. All she did was flip that damn page over and had me write the opposite of each one. And so it, I feel like that's kind of a Rumpelstiltskin moment. Like, spinning the shit into gold like all of this stuff that I had been like here's my baggage you know what I mean like all this shit that I had been carrying around for so long was finally worth something it finally had meaning but it it took working with another alcoholic to get there something that I learned early on is that the brain cannot fix itself I cannot solve my own problems and it took being fully honest and being fully transparent with another alcoholic who knew themselves and knew the facts about alcoholism um, to get me to be honest and change all of, you know, spin all of my shit into gold. And I went home and I did my six and seven and I meditated and all of that. Um, but that six and seven didn't really hit me until... A couple of years in and and that's through just learning um you know picking stuff up as I go my amends like I gotta be honest like I'm still working on it we were talking about it earlier and like a lot of my amends are people that do not want to talk to me and so what I do is living amends I try to live differently I try to act differently I try to I try to treat you differently than I would have in a past life um, just living on a different plane. Uh, you know, step nine, making amends to others except when to do so would injure them or others. Like, sometimes the others are us. And I've had a couple of amends situations that did not go well. Um, but those were the amends where I didn't check in with my sponsor first or I checked in and then, like, was maybe holding some stuff back that I didn't tell her, you know, like the only times that the program has not worked for me are the times that I have not been fully transparent. Like I'm going to, that is a fact. Um, and so I know now that like when I'm making amends and I set out to do that, that, uh, uh, the, the heavy lifting, and, and working with others, those parts later on in the steps where we start to work with others. If I'm going to come into contact with somebody else, I need to talk to my sponsor about it first. Um, 10, 11, and 12. Well, 10 and 11 for me are those maintenance steps. Like, I don't do regular 10 steps, which lead me to, leads me to a lot of fourth stepping. Um, 
I do uh, four steps a little too frequently. Um, but let me tell you, I have never regretted doing a fourth step. I have never regretted doing that work. Um, I do have regular people that I check in with um, that I hold myself accountable to. Um, so that to me is kind of 10 stepping, but there's something different about putting pen to paper um, that that's really magical for me. And the 12th step, man, as a, as a direct result of having worked this program, I have a spiritual experience. We have a friend who likes to say that it is a money back guarantee. If I work the steps, I will have a spiritual experience. And for me, like, the spiritual experience has been the shift in perspective. Um, the last several meetings that I've been to and the, the thing that's been brought up in, in my line of vision recently has been that the world doesn't change. It's my perspective that changes. And I'm not going to lie, dude. I've, I'm like, I'm struggling with work. I fucking hate my job. I think it's bullshit the like I think that they have low standards and all this like I have so many like you know all this stuff that I think and um but like I'm struggling with job and I'm struggling with money and I'm struggling with this and that and but I still I still get to work the steps about it I don't drink over that stuff anymore and when it robs me of my peace of mind or keeps me up at night or takes up too much space in my head, whatever it is, if it's work or friends or family or whatever, I have people that I can talk to and I have tools that I can use now that I didn't have before. And I don't know, man, AA has just given me the fighting chance that, that I, I never got before. And you guys taught me that with honesty and open-mindedness and willingness I can do anything and go anywhere and the thing that I want to leave off on is what I heard um somebody say at NA24 when I came back in which was that uh I never have to drink again if I don't want to I never have to be alone again if I don't want to and I never have to struggle like I did in active addiction. And that's been true. Um, my sobriety date is 8-13-16. Um, so like four years and some change. And I still struggle. I still have ups and downs. But man, I have this sense of peace and contentedness that I I wouldn't trade for anything. So thanks for letting me share my story.